I'm Ann Dark. I'm Tracy Stormy. And I'm Kathy Knight. And together we are It Was a Dark and Stormy Book Club, a podcast for mystery lovers. Welcome. If you enjoy our show, please consider contributing to the Dark and Stormy Patreon. By becoming a patron, you will help us create better and quality content. There are also benefits to becoming a patron, such as exclusive content and Dark and Stormy merchandise. Become a supporter at patreon.com slash darkandstormybc. Check our website for the link. We appreciate any and all contributions. Thank you. Hello and welcome to episode 135 of Dark and Stormy Book Club. Today we visit with the author, Brian Freeman. Brian Freeman is a New York Times best-selling author of psychological thrillers, including the Jonathan Stride and Frost Easton series. His books have been sold in 46 countries and 22 languages. He is widely acclaimed for his quote-unquote, you-are-there settings, and his complex, engaging characters and twist-filled plots. Brian was also selected as the official author to continue Robert Ludlum's Jason Bourne series. Freeman was born in Chicago and grew up in San Mateo, California, before moving to Minnesota. Funeral for a Friend is the tenth in the Jonathan Stride series. Jonathan Stride's best friend, Steve Garsky, makes a shocking deathbed confession. He protected Stride by covering up a murder. Hours later, the police dig up Steve's yard and find a body with a bullet hole in its skull. Stride is pretty sure he knows who it is. Seven years ago, an out-of-town reporter disappeared while investigating anonymous allegations of rape against a prominent politician. Back then, the police believed that the reporter drowned at a dangerous swimming hole called the Deets. But the discovery of the body changes everything. Now, Stride's partner, Maggie Bai, is forced to ask Stride an uncomfortable question. Did you kill him? We would like to welcome Brian Freeman to the program. He is the author of the fascinating book, A Funeral for a Friend. Welcome, Brian. Thank you. It's great to be with you. For your latest book, you had a virtual event instead of a live event. Have you had those before, and how do they compare to the live event? Obviously, this year has turned everything upside down. I can remember back last winter, we had scheduled something like 25 to 30 library and bookstore events throughout the early months of the year, and of course, they all ended up getting canceled. Yeah, we've now transitioned to doing virtual events, Zoom, Crowdcast, Facebook Live, things like that. And we've been doing those kinds of things for the launch of Funeral for a Friend. And it's good and it's bad. Doing a virtual event, you'd obviously prefer to be in the same room with the readers. On the other hand, one thing that's great is that we can actually have readers participating in book events all across the country and all around the world. And that's great because in a lot of cases, we'd never have a chance to get to some of these places in person to do events. So by doing them virtually, it means that folks can join us no matter where they are geographically. The downside of it is that for a speaker, a virtual event is actually much, much harder than a live event because I think any speaker will tell you that you take a lot of your energy from the reaction of the audience. And when that piece is cut out, 
it just becomes a lot more draining and you really sort of have to bring all of the emotion into the event yourself as opposed to drawing some of that energy from the people who are there. And, and of course, technology is always an issue. I did one Facebook Live event a few months ago and my camera went off just as I went live. And it, so it meant that I spent the next hour literally staring at a black screen. So I couldn't even see myself to see whether I was framed in the camera and what my reactions were. So when things like that happen, virtual events can be challenging. So uh, it's good and bad, but this is what we're doing these days. I think that going forward, even when we get back to a situation where we can do live events, I'm sure I'm going to still be mixing in virtual events just to be able to give more folks a chance to participate. Well, it definitely gets you exposed to a lot more people. You inherited the Jason Bourne novels from Robert Ludlum. How do you make a series like that your own while still keeping the premise of the Bourne history? That was one of the really exciting things this year. I've got more than 20 books of my own out of the marketplace, but early last year, Putnam and the Robert Ludlum estate selected me to take over and reboot Ludlum's Jason Bourne series, which was just an incredible honor for me. I've been a Ludlum fan my whole life. I can remember reading The Bourne Identity for the first time literally 40 years ago when it came out back in 1980. So it was a very exciting, creative prospect for me as a writer. But, you know, it's also a little bit intimidating if you think about trying to step into the shoes of such an amazing writer and such an iconic hero. And, of course, Jason Bourne has had a lot of different iterations over the course of the last 40 years. Ludlum did three books himself featuring Bourne, and Eric von Lustbader took over the series in the early 2000s and did another 11 novels. And then, of course, you've got all of those amazing Matt Damon movies as well. And all of those iterations took sort of a different vision of who Bourne was as a hero. So as I started thinking about how do I write my own version of Bourne, I really decided that I needed to chart my own path. And so the Bourne evolution essentially functions as a standalone. You really don't have to have read any of the other books. You don't have to have seen any of the movies. It takes that character and puts him into a modern setting, and it's an all-new plot around him. And what I was really trying to do was go back to the roots of Ludlum's original book in The Bourne Identity and really hone in on the elements that have made Bourne such an enduring, iconic hero and bring that element into my book. So I think The Bourne Evolution should feel completely fresh and new, and yet the characters should feel very familiar and close to the folks that recognize them. It should really feel like you're picking up a Robert Ludlum novel and that this is a hero you've known for a long time. Will you continue with that? Yeah. In fact, I'm working on the second one right now. I can't wait because I am a huge Jason Bourne fan. It was a lot of fun to write. In fact, I remember that literally the first two words I put on my whiteboard as I was starting to map out the Bourne evolution were have fun, because these books should be great adrenaline-fueled escapist entertainment. And so for me, it was just a lot of fun to write this novel. And I've been thrilled at the reader reaction. I mean, so many folks have said it's, it's really like picking up a Robert Ludlum novel, and that's a great honor for me as a writer. We're going to go back to Funeral for a Friend. And it has a lot of twists and turns. And we thought we had it figured out until dot, dot, dot. <laughs> Something always happens to change the direction of the entire story. How do you get such plot twists straight as you write? I do love the twist. That's such a fun part of putting the novel together. And 
I usually have the backstory in mind before I start the book. There's kind of two layers to building a thriller. The first is that backstory. It's all of the secrets of the novel. It's who did what to whom and why. And then the other layer is actually telling the story and how do you unfold those secrets to the reader with the most drama and the most suspense. And what I find is that typically the backstory does not necessarily change that much. I kind of know what the core secrets are before I start, but I'm also looking at how do I maximize the drama as I'm getting the words on the page. So I'm constantly sort of massaging my outline and thinking about how I can present these scenes in a way that just keeps ramping up the drama for the reader. Part of that then is sort of having twists evolve as I'm actually telling the story. And you'll find that with every chapter ending, there's usually a little hook that makes you want to turn the page and find out what happens next. But then in many cases, I'll actually shift to a different part of the story and you have to read another chapter to get back to that original twist. Well, then there's another twist at the end of that chapter. That's the fun I like to have of trying to drive the reader through the narrative. One of my favorite emails from a reader was a woman who wrote to me and said that she'd been reduced to taking illicit bathroom breaks at work to get in another chapter. So <laughs> <laughs> I figure that's me doing my job. <laughs> well, as a reader, I've always kind of been curious with these cliffhangers at the end of each chapter. Is that more the author who is determining where those cliffhangers show up, or does that come out more in editing? Well, at least for me, it's always the author that puts those in. I'm always thinking about how do I leave the story in a point where you're kind of dangling from the cliff and you need to keep turning the pages because it's that structure of the book that really propels the narrative and you want that compulsive page turning effect. Yeah, I got all of the twists built in by the time I've got the manuscript done. And when I go back and edit, what I'm really trying to focus on is removing myself from the manuscript. I never want to get between the reader and the story or the reader and the characters. I want that to be sort of a seamless relationship so you don't notice the writer back there. I mean, we've got some great prose stylists in the thriller world. But every now and then I might read one of their books and I'll feel like I'm reading a paragraph that's beautifully written, but I can kind of feel the author sitting there next to me going, wow, that was a great paragraph, wasn't it? I don't want the reader to feel my presence. I want them to be just completely absorbed in the story and the characters. So if prose is not advancing the story in some way or it's not advancing the relationships of the characters, then I'll try to edit it out. So the editing is really about smoothing out and getting me out of the story. And that's part of pace too. I mean, the more that people are sort of caught up in the story and don't have anything that lifts them out of the narrative, the more they're going to have to keep turning those pages. I have read the author's wife blog. Is Serena based on the author's wife? <laughs> Serena, of course, is Stride's wife in the Stride series. I think it depends on how you look at it. If you factor in the fact that I think Serena is smarter than Stride and certainly does not take any crap from him, well then, yes, you could certainly find some <laughs> parallel with me and Marsha. And I think there's a little bit of me, there's a little bit of Marsha in every character I create. Inevitably, I think you're going to see some of us come through on the page. And yet, at the same time, all of these characters need to stand on their own. And it's an interesting experience for a writer that you really do reach a point where the characters are kind of guiding you. And that's an important part of the storytelling process. It means that typically, 
maybe the first third of a novel is always the hardest writing process because it's in those early chapters that the story needs to take shape and come alive and the characters need to take shape and come alive. And once that happens, they literally start guiding you through the book. And at that point, the pace tends to accelerate from a writing standpoint because the characters are kind of helping me through the story. In this book, you dealt with some real hot-button topics like rape and police misconduct, to name a few. Were you inspired by current headlines, or did you have this plot in mind all along? A lot of times, I think readers will find in my stride books that they have sort of a ripped from the headlines feel to them. And sometimes it's based on my taking a look at what's going on in the world and wanting to bring some of those themes and issues into the story. And sometimes it's happenstance that they kind of happen just the right time. I remember in my last stride novel, Alter Ego, I was dealing with a plot that focused on the idea of a movie being made of one of Stride's cases. And the actor who is playing Stride in the movie turns out to have some very dark secrets in his past that Stride exposes. And of course, I turned in the manuscript of Alter Ego, and literally two weeks later, all of the secrets about Harvey Weinstein burst open <laughs> in the press. And so I had my editor on the phone saying, well, did you know something? Alter Ego sort of became the first thriller of the Me Too generation, and yet it was really just a coincidence of timing. It was something that I'd been thinking about as a plot concept for several years, and it just happened to fall right at the time when all these things were coming to light. In The Funeral for a Friend, that was one where I really did want to explore some of these issues connected to assault and memory and what is it like to be a victim and how does that experience change people. Clearly, back when we had the Supreme Court Kavanaugh hearings, there was a lot of that kind of thing coming up in terms of misconduct that people were talking about from literally decades into someone's past. And how much can you rely on what anyone is saying about those events? And that certainly shaped my thinking about what the essential crimes would be in Funeral for a Friend. And that's pretty common that in a lot of cases, I'll be looking at real events and I'll start playing around with the circumstances and twisting everything around and making this story my own. But it should still feel ripped from the headlines as if I remember reading something, a story like that, a crime like that in the newspaper. So I think that gives the books that currency and fresh I deal with some very difficult issues, complex, dark issues in most of the books, but I never want to do that in either a gratuitous way or in a way that suggests that any of these things have easy answers. I mean, what I try to do is lay this all out in all of the shades of gray and let the reader kind of come to their own conclusion about how this works for the characters. Speaking of characters, we hear all the time from authors that these characters take on a life of their own and they become like family. In Funeral for a Friend, did you mourn Steve in your own way? Yeah, it is absolutely true. I think a lot of folks uh, think authors are a little strange when we talk about the way the characters come to life as real people, but it is absolutely a genuine phenomenon. It makes series books and standalone books somewhat different. For example, my most recent standalone, Thief River Falls, which came out in January, it revolves around a heroine named Lisa Power, who is a thriller writer like me and goes through a very, very intense series of experiences in this novel. When I was writing it, getting to the end of the book, it is always very difficult when you are closing the door on a standalone because you recognize that you're not going to meet those characters again. And that's sad. There's a real loss to that. And so even in looking at a series book like the Stride books, the Stride book, I know I'm going to meet Stride again 
in a new book. But then a character like Steve, who is Stride's close friend, when he passes away, you're losing a friend, myself as well. That's a difficult experience. And I've been very honored by how readers have reacted to this because I've had already this week so many readers writing to me and saying they were in tears by the end of chapter one as Stride and Steve have their final deathbed conversation. So yeah, as a writer, that's a very, very difficult thing to do. Now, I will tell you that there are also always sort of interesting little real-world backstories to these things. And in the case of the name Steve Garsky, that's actually the name of a real person who had bid on the opportunity to be in a stride book for a nonprofit organization. We were doing a special auction to raise money for an organization called Wishes and More. And so Steve won the bid to get his name in, I think it was The Cold Nowhere, one of my stride novels. And I've used Steve as a character in several of the books since then. Of course, I have another good friend who is a radio DJ here in the Twin Cities named John Hines, who also happens to be very good friends with Steve Garsky. John has been needling me for several books to just kill off Steve Garsky already. So this time around, I actually did that and sent Steve an advanced copy of the book with the inscription, R.I.P. Steve Garsky. So. <laughs> yeah, that's great. How did he take it? He was okay with it. I said, hey, you and Stride had a good run. Well, that was a great first chapter of a book. It definitely pushed me forward to find out what happened. And that, of course, is always the challenge, I think, particularly in a thriller, is you just want that opening to grab the reader by the throat. And you can layer in other things as you go in terms of the characters in the story, but you really want to start off in such a way that the reader just has to turn those pages to find out what happens next. Since this is my first stride novel and I was getting to know the characters, I at first thought Kat was way too over-sexualized for such a young woman. But in learning about her past, I can see he, she has a lot of psychological baggage. How did you get into the mindset of such a traumatized young woman? There's two things there. I mean, one is saying that's your first Stride novel. There are now 10 novels in the Stride series. Funeral for a Friend is the most recent. And I have a number of readers who will say, well, I haven't met Stride before. Do I have to go all the way back to the beginning and start with my very first book, Immoral, and kind of go all the way through? As a writer, I always say, well, that's behavior I highly encourage. Sure, go back and buy all the books. I write each novel in the Stride series like a standalone. I want you to have a full, rich appreciation of the series characters in each book and try to avoid spoilers from the earlier books. And I think of it the way people think about meeting people in their lives. I mean, you're not only going to be friends with people that you met in your teens or 20s, you're going to meet people throughout your life. And once you get to know someone and you like who they are, then you're sort of interested in going back and finding out more of their stories and, and how they got to that point in their lives. And I think the same is true of a good series, that you ought to be able to get to know Stride in any of the book and like him as a character and as a hero, and it makes you simply want to find out more about the other experiences he's had in his life. And then you look at a character like Kat. I love Kat as a character. She has obviously been through some very, very difficult things in her life. We first met Kat back in The Cold Nowhere, and The Cold Nowhere is an extremely difficult book for her, and, and she's essentially, she was a homeless, abused teenager, and she shows up soaking wet, hiding in Stride's closet when he comes home one night, and he needs to find out who this girl is and what her connection to him is from his past and find out who, in fact, is stalking this girl. And so really Stride and Serena in the cold nowhere begin to rescue Kat from this life she's had. And as they do that, at the same time, 
I think Kat is also rescuing them and serving to repair some problems that Stride and Serena had gone through in their own relationship. And that has then evolved over the last several books. And what you see with Kat is that she's impetuous and she doesn't always make the right choices and she kind of charges in without really thinking through what she's doing, which makes her a teenager. And yet you can also see a slow maturing process with Kat as a character as well. I think with any character, it is always a question of how do you get inside their head? And it's not so much a question of how do I write a character who's a teenage girl? It's more a question of how do I let a character like Cat channel their essence through me? And that's kind of an important creative distinction for a writer. I'm not trying to impose a certain character on someone like Cat. I'm not trying to make them behave the way I want them to behave. I'm really trying to let them show me how they would behave as real people. And it's kind of a trust-building process between the author and the character. And so if you believe in that, then you can really allow any character, I think, to come to life on the page because you're just sort of acting as the medium by which that character establishes who they are. When I wrote a book called The Deep, Deep Snow, it actually comes out in paperback late in October. It was a New York Times audio bestseller last year. It was an Audible original. The Deep, Deep Snow is told in the first person through a young female sheriff's deputy. She's 25 years old at the start of the book. And that was a fascinating creative experience for me. I had never written a mystery in the first person, and to do so and then have a woman as narrator as well, for me, it was fascinating to watch how that developed because it was kind of like I had to get Shelby, who is the narrator, I had to get her to trust me, to allow me to tell her story. So we were negotiating with each other in the early chapters of the book, and then we got to a chapter that by outline really wasn't intended to be a particularly key chapter in the novel. It was just sort of advancing a couple things. And yet Shelby ended up sort of unveiling a secret to me about her past in that chapter that I hadn't seen coming. And it was as if Shelby as a character had finally reached a point of trusting me with her story and her secrets. And once that happened, then the rest of the book sort of flowed more smoothly. So that's kind of how it works between the author and the characters. After 10 Jonathan Stride books, does it ever get old? Even Conan Doyle got sick of Sherlock. <laughs> if you get tired of your series characters, then you ought to stop the series. If an author keeps on going after he or she has lost interest in the characters, I think there's no way that's not going to translate into what you see on the page. For me, it's really a question of, do these characters have more stories to tell? And as long as they do, as long as they're continuing to grow and change and evolve, then I think there's always going to be life and excitement in the series. People will ask me, do you know how the Stride series is going to end? And I always tell them, I have no idea. And I know that someone like J.K. Rowling said that, well, she knew what was going to happen in the Harry Potter series from the beginning, which is perfectly fine. I don't have a clue what's going to happen in the long run with the Stride series because Stride, when you meet him in Funeral for a Friend, is a very different man, a very different kind of hero than he was in my very first book, Immoral. And that's because he has changed over the course of all of the things that have happened to him in the books. And when I start a new Stride book, the first thing I'm doing is thinking about where the lives of those series characters are and what kinds of things are going to be happening and how are they going to be evolving and changing. And as long as that's going on, then I think you're always going to have exciting stories to tell about the characters. So as long as they're continuing to grow, then I think the series is going to always excite the author as well. 
Do you get a lot of questions from your fans on where the direction should go? Oh, yes. The readers are never shy about giving me their ideas about things. And that's always fun. I mean, what it really shows you is the extent to which these characters become very real for the readers. And that's part of the experience. Yeah, I had a great question from a reader a few years ago. She asked me, if I met Stride on the street, would I recognize him? And I said, well, I don't think that I would, but I bet you would. Because for me, I very deliberately paint Stride in watercolors. I want to provide enough detail to seed the reader's imagination and have you fill in the gaps of that character in your mind. And so I think as a result, that's why readers become very close to someone like Stride and very emotionally connected to him, because they share in the creative process of bringing that character to life in their imaginations. And as a result, I think they have a strong attachment to those characters, and they want to see what happens next. That is so true, because I have certain series that I absolutely love, and when they cast them in a movie or in a TV show, it's always kind of a letdown, because it's not what's in your mind of what you picture these characters to be. Yeah, that's absolutely right. That's why passionate readers always struggle with movie and TV adaptations, because they have this very vivid image of this character in their mind, and inevitably what shows up on the screen is going to be different from the way they've imagined it. Brian, you have really given us a glimpse into the writing process, and it's very interesting. What are you doing now in your process? I think you said at the beginning you're working on a new Jason Bourne novel. Do you have anything else in the works? I'm keeping pretty busy. Uh, I'm actually working on three novels this year. I did three last year. I'm working on three this year. I've already finished a new standalone thriller called Infinite, and Infinite will be coming out in March of next year. And I love that book. It is far and away the most unusual thriller I've ever written, and yet it's also a classic Brian Freeman thrillers. Infinite starts as my thrillers always do with a very emotional situation in which a man has lost his wife in an accident when their car goes off the road into a flooded river. So he is dealing with the grief and loss that goes along with this and trying to put his life back together. But while that is happening, he's also having a series of scary, unusual experiences where he keeps seeing visions of himself in other places. And it's as if he has this doppelganger out there who is showing up and taunting him. And so he has to understand what is really going on. And he thinks it's all part of his imagination. And yet then he meets a psychologist who tells him that he has been her patient and she has been treating him with a very unusual new therapy. So that's how Infinite gets started. It's one of my favorite books. As I say, it's very, very unusual in the light of the kinds of things I've done, and yet it's also very much a classic Brian Freeman thriller. So I can't wait to get that in the hands of readers. And then I'm working on two more books simultaneously right now. I'm working on the next Jason Bourne novel called The Bourne Treachery, which will be out next summer. And I'm doing a follow-up book to The Deep, Deep Snow, which will come out next year as an Audible original again. So it'll initially be an audiobook exclusive. So yeah, I've got a lot on my plate, but the nice thing is all of these projects are so very different from each other. And that's one of the things I find energizing and inspirational is the fact that I can put down one project and pick up something else that takes me to a whole new kind of story and very, very different characters. And how about Jonathan Stride? Anything new on that horizon? A stride certainly will come back. I don't know yet exactly when that will be, but there will certainly be more stride for readers in the future.
definitely keep us posted on all of these. They definitely sound like right up our alley. Excellent. And can you tell our listeners your website so they can keep track of what's coming and what's already been? Absolutely. Readers can find me pretty much everywhere online. My website is bfreemanbooks.com. That's all one word, bfreemanbooks.com. And they can find descriptions of all of my book and sales links and my blog and links to Marsha's blog. And then they can also find me on social media. My Twitter and Instagram handles are also B Freeman Books, one word, B Freeman Books. And then over on Facebook, they can like my fan page. That is facebook.com slash B Freeman fans, facebook.com slash B Freeman fans. And I love hearing from readers. I love it when they send me emails and post on my page and ask questions. I always encourage people to get in touch with me after they've read one of my books and let me know what they think. Brian, we thank you so much for taking time to talk with us. We love this book and look forward to all the next Brian Freemoon books. And we hope you enjoy the rest of your day. Well, thank you so much. I really enjoyed chatting with all of you and look forward to doing so again. Well, I have another series that I wish I would have discovered sooner, but I've got 10 books to go back and check out. I have to say, I really enjoyed Stride, and Jonathan Stride kind of reminds me of a Lucas Davenport-type character. He has a tough exterior, but he definitely has a soft side when it comes to his family. And I love Lucas Davenport, so I was all in on Jonathan Stride. I agree. There's a lot of correlation between this series and even the area they kind of take I was place. Right. I was curious as to whether he said it in Minneapolis. I didn't know. The family dynamic is very close to a Sanford. I'm a huge Lucas Davenport fan. So oh, I am too. When I started reading this, I was like, yes, because, you know, you can't always get a new Lucas Davenport. So now I have a whole new character to wrap my teeth into. He did say he writes each of his books as almost a standalone. So, and I really felt and that it was. I didn't feel lost at all. Even the part about Cat, I do want to go back and read that book. Yeah, yeah. Because I'm curious. I mean, they go into little bits in this book, but it doesn't bring her whole story out. So I definitely want to go back and read. All of them. All of them, yes, definitely. Well, when I was explaining to Brian how I read the first chapter and it grabbed me, I just thought it was, and this is no secret because it's one of the first things that happens in the book, is the book opens with a dying man giving his deathbed confession. And he says, don't worry, you're safe. I found the body and buried it. I was all in. I had to find out what happened. That was surprising. He knew the person that the body he was talking about, right. but he doesn't know why he's saying that to him. Right. <laughs> because Steve didn't know. Stride he, didn't know. Yeah. So it He was, thought he was confessing to the right person. Right. So many twists and turns to this book. And I you, thought for sure it's this guy. Bingo, that person was <laughs> off. <laughs> nope. Brian did an excellent job. Those red herrings were flying at you left and right, but very well done. Yeah. When you finish this book, you kind of sit back and go, that was a 
good ride. Yeah, and the ending, I truly did not see coming. I didn't either. It was. And for you to say that, that's saying a lot. Well, I can't say how impressed I am with the fact that Brian kind of knows this all along and plans this. Yeah. yeah. You know, how window. am I going to confuse the reader so they don't know what I'm doing? <laughs> it's, it's a window into his world of writing, and I'm in all of it because I am certainly not that creative. <laughs> no, me so. either. This is the 10th Jonathan Stride book, like we said. This story builds and these characters build, but he did such an amazing job of condensing this book into a story all its own. I was never lost, but I cannot wait to go back and see how these characters got to where, to they, where are. they are. <laughs> I, I'd characters. like to go back and see the dynamic when he and Serena got together mm -hmm. and there were some issues there. Altogether, a very, very good read. I couldn't put it down. It was very well done. I sound like a broken record. This is the one we highly recommend. Well, that's what I feel like our job is here at this podcast is to let people know, look, if you have looked past this book, stop. Go back, pick it up. You will not be disappointed. That's right. Well, I am certainly looking forward to this book called Infinite. Oh, that, yes. Yeah, that's, that's very, that very like intriguing. I winner. love psychological, twisty, turny oh, yeah. books. And, and, it, and we know that he is really good at the twists and turns. Yes. So I think he'll do an excellent job mm -hmm. with that. And it sounds really, really unique. So yeah. mm -hmm. really looking forward to that. My new and noteworthy book this week is Taken Too Soon by Edith Maxwell. It is number six in her Quaker Midwife Mystery Series. It came out September 8th, and it is put out by Beyond the Page. Quaker midwife Rose Carroll must turn her investigative skills on her own family when a young woman's murder stuns a New England community. My new and noteworthy book is House of Correction by Nikki French. It comes out on October 27th, and the publisher is William Morrow. A novel that blissfully plays with two genres. On the one hand, an against-the-odds legal thriller, a la John Grisham, and on the other, a Miss Marple whodunit set in a Devon village. Trivia! Last week's question was, which mystery author had the pleasure and privilege of cooking dinner for Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Was it A. Ellen Byron, B. Donna Andrews, C. Leslie Karst, or D. Lauren Ellicott? The answer is C. Leslie Karst, friend of the show Leslie Karst, and author of the Sally Soleri Mystery Series. Her father was a law professor. He and Justice Ginsburg were very close friends. You can read about the dinner on the blog www.jungleredwriters.com.
www.thepeopleshow.com. I will put the exact link in our show notes. This week's question is, Rex Stout was the creator of Nero Wolf. He made more money from what than from writing his mysteries? A. Gambling B. He created a school banking system C. He wrote greeting cards or D. He wrote romances under another name. Good luck! Be sure and visit our website at darkstormybc.com and there you can listen to all of our previous episodes and find a lot of authors you might not have heard of before. You can also sign up for our monthly newsletter, which will tell you what's coming up on the program. You can send us a note at darkandstormybookclub at gmail.com. We love to hear from our listeners. That brings us to the end. So thank you for listening. We hope you join us next time. And remember, life would be boring without a little mystery. Bye. Bye.